We've been covering Paul and we've been covering his life and today we get to the point where he gets to Rome and I'm so glad because I'm not the patient kind of guy. Oh, I'm okay with problems and children and people. I can be patient in that way, but waiting? Mm -mm. I don't like to wait. You want to get on my nerves? Send me an email that says, I need to talk to you. My view of life is, if you need to talk to me and you're emailing me, then email me why you need to talk to me and what it's about. Otherwise, you know, I get these emails from people at work. Um, uh, As soon as you get a chance, we need to talk. It's very important. And I just sit there and think, well, I would really like to talk now if it's that important. I do not do things like that well. I, 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 I want to be better. I pray that God will help me be better. In fact, I can't wait to get better, okay? <laughs> because I don't like being impatient in that way. Uh, but you think about God and the way God works, and God calls on us to be patient. As I was thinking about it as I was writing the lesson, uh, you know, God says to Joseph, he gives Joseph, this 17-year-old boy, a couple of dreams about how Joseph's going to, um, in essence, become the the head of the family even though he's got these older brothers and the family will come to joseph and joseph will lead them in a sense and rule over them and joseph shares the dreams to his brothers that did not turn out real well the brothers weren't too hip over that but uh, joseph shares the dreams to his brothers but those dreams don't immediately come true and if you work through genesis you see that joseph waits for decades Joseph's probably 40. It's probably 23 years plus later when his brothers finally come to him and the dreams are fulfilled. Or you think about his great-grandfather Abraham who with Sarah had been promised a child, but it just seems to take forever for God to do it because God has God's timing, not ours. So here we've got Paul, and Paul was told by God, I'm taking you to Rome. You're going to go to Rome, and you're going to preach for me. And Paul's into the third year of the promise when this slide we showed last week takes place. And Paul finally starts that journey and starts going to Rome. Three years from the time God told him. That's incredible. Now, that's where we are in the class Paul is going to finally get to Rome. It didn't take us three years to go through that time, but it's taken us a few weeks. And for those of you who have not been in here, I want you to get into the flow of what we've been through. So I've prepared a little slide to kind of get you caught up to date time-wise. So we're going to go to Google Maps, and this gives us the worldview of Paul being in Jerusalem, then he gets carted over to Caesarea, and he's got to get over to Rome. And this is basically how it happened. Just sit right back and you hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. Now, that gets us to Crete. It was in Crete where... The weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the minnow would be lost. The minnow would be lost. 
And that gets us to the shipwreck on Malta. They they stayed in Malta for the winter. Yes, I know. Which one would have been Paul? Well, he can't be the captain or Gilligan. He certainly wasn't Thurston, but he was a pretty smart fellow who had rabbinical training, so we'll make him the professor. (laughs) When Paul gets to Malta and the shipwreck's taking place and all 276 people on the, the, the ship as God had promised, made it to safety. Uh, Paul was welcomed by the the natives of the island, the locals. This is a view of the Bay of Paul on the island of Malta. Now, scholars, there have been a minority number of scholars who've said that even though uh, the island was called Melita, which is the Greek for Malta, and it's now Malta, uh, surely Paul went to a different island, not that one. Uh, Those scholars... Uh, I didn't even give that much attention to. Actually, I didn't give them any attention in the paper because when you read it, they're in the minority and they're wrong. Okay, I mean, it's rare for me to say that because scholars generally have reasons for what they think, but they're wrong. It's Malta, okay? So Paul gets there. Now, the locals, they're called island natives, in the English Standard Version. You go back to the King James, the American Standards, they call them barbarians. Okay? Now, they were not your typical barbarian. When we think barbarian, we think Arnold Schwarzenegger and Conan the barbarian, maybe. That's not what they were. Um, uh, in, in Greek... The word barbarian is, is an interesting word. Let's uh, take a moment. Um, the word barbarian in the Greek is bar, bar, oi. Actually, it's the way it ends. Get that a little bigger. Uh-huh. And, and that's just the same thing over and over. Bar, bar. And this is just an ending. It can change. Bar, bar. Bar, bar in the Greek Those are people who don't speak Greek. That's all they are. The reason that word got used is because to the Greeks who spoke in a very melodious way, their accents had a a pitch to them and the words would go up and down and it was almost singing the way they spoke. And the non-Greek speakers, the barbarians, were that because to the Greek ear, whatever they were saying just sounded like, Bar, 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 bar. So they were just the bar bars. Okay? So that's all Luke's saying here. These were non-Greek speakers. They were bar bars who walked around going bar, 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 bar. Truth be told, they were they spoke a Phoenician dialect, which is very close to Hebrew. And so Paul, probably more so than anybody else, understood what they were saying. Paul would have been able to communicate with them would have been about the same maybe for us as us speaking to someone in uh, Ireland, you know, who's got a very thick Irish accent and maybe some Irish words we don't have. But it's close enough to where if they talk slow enough, we can communicate. So Paul's able to talk to them probably more so than anyone else. 
the the ship uh, 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 people, the, the the passengers and the crew on the ship, they make it to the beach. It's cold. The wind is blowing. And Luke says that the bar, 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 bars were very, very kind to them, treated them kindly. They, they built a fire on the beach because of the cold, because of the wind. While the locals are doing that for Paul and others, Paul goes out and starts helping. In fact, Paul goes and starts picking up sticks. The... Okay, that's a definite generation thing. Those who are used to Nintendo and Wii, before those games were invented, we dinosaurs played games like Pick Up Sticks. It's an incredibly fascinating game. In fact, it almost took the, it, it almost kept Nintendo off the market. Almost were not enough people to give this up. To bring Nintendo around. You take these this tube with all these sticks and you shake them out and they fall. And the goal is to pick them up. <clears throat> we have a tournament every Friday night at our house if you want to come. No. Um, Paul goes out and he starts picking up sticks. As Paul picks up the sticks, he takes a bundle of them and he puts them into the fire which seemed to cause a problem because one of the supposed looking sticks was not a stick and didn't care too much for the heat. And at that point came out of the bundle of sticks Paul had and grabs a hold of Paul's hand. Yeah. The natives, the bar, 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 bars, the locals, they see it and say, uh-huh, he's a murderer. See, the whole reason that storm and shipwreck happened was the gods were punishing him, and somehow he escaped. But the gods cannot be so easily thwarted. Now, no doubt Paul was in some type of chains or at least custody, so that it helped the murderer image to have this Roman guard, even though the bar, 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 bars may not have been able to understand it, they did see that here's this guy who probably doesn't look too good after two weeks in a storm-tossed ship that's now crashed and now had... To swim aboard uh, on shore, he doesn't look just dandy, you know. But he's got this big centurion standing next to him with all of his regalia, and they figured, ah, he's a murderer, and the gods are getting justice. Paul, on the other hand, no doubt knowing the words of Jesus that, uh, uh, you know, these signs will accompany those who believe. They'll be bit by serpents, and they'll be okay. Mark sixteen seventeen, um, Paul just takes it, shakes it off into the fire. Well, all the bar, 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 bars are sitting around waiting, saying they're, they're taking money. How long do you think till he swells up and dies? I give him ten minutes. Okay, I give you know, and and they're sitting around debating how long it's going to take for this guy to die, and they're watching. But Paul doesn't swell up. Paul doesn't. Uh, uh, go into some fit. Paul doesn't have some cardiac arrest. Paul just keeps right on going. At which point they say, you know, <clears throat> we, we figured he was a murderer. Turns out we're wrong. You know why he's got that, that guard with him? This is a god. Man, he gets bit by a snake, a viper, and he's fine. 
He must be a God. Now let me digress for a moment and tell you. One of the reasons the scholars think that the island of Malta was not the real island of Malta where Paul shipwrecked is because you go to the island of Malta now and there are no venomous snakes. So they figure it must be some other island with venomous snakes. The reason that's dispelled is today we're about 1950 years later. The island of Malta is very different than it was. The forests of Malta have been taken down. We know from archaeological work there used to be forests on Malta. There aren't anymore. There are innumerable islands. I did a scientific search and found several, just writing the lesson, innumerable islands where we know there are no longer poisonous animals that used to be there even 150 years ago. So just because you've got this island that's a few miles long and it doesn't have any venomous snakes on it doesn't mean you just disregard everything else that indicates that has to be the island where Paul landed. So that's an irrelevant point that I only brought in because I brought in the irrelevant point earlier. (laughs) Now that we got those out of the way. The islanders, they treat Paul very, very well. Paul is, in fact, in Luke. We don't know how many others. You get the impression it's not the 276. But Paul and Luke, which makes, and Aristarchus, which makes sense if they think Paul might be a god, get invited by the official of the island, a fellow named Publius, who is the first man of Malta. That does not mean they'd never had men there before. That meant he's like the... Lord High Muckety Muck of Malta. He gets Paul and and Luke and Aristarchus and some of the others. And for three days, he entertains them. He treats them to the island's best. He feeds them. He gives them something to drink. And no doubt for dessert, they had those malted milk balls. And Paul... It, it, it turns out to be a win-win deal because Publius's father is very, very sick. He's got, and Dr. Luke uses medical terms uh, uh, that are, are very precise, but basically in our book, he's got this fever that comes and goes. Luke uses the plural for fevers. You, you don't have fevers in the sense that, well, let's see, I've got a fever on the right side of me and I've got another fever on the left side of me. Over here, I'm running 101.3. Over here, I'm just a 101. You know, it's not that kind of fevers. He uses the plural in a medical sense because the fever's coming and going, okay? He's got dysentery. He's sick. So Paul lays hands on him, prays, and he's healed. Okay, the island really likes this. So everybody in the island bring all of the sick people to Paul. And Paul heals the island's sick, never knowing that a few thousand years later, the official stamp of Malta will have Paul on it. They not only named the bay after him, he's got a stamp. That's pretty big time. Um, so... Paul heals the island sick. He preaches to the island. He stays there for three months while the hard winter season passes. This is the winter season that makes um, uh, seafaring uh, uh, too treacherous to, to take place unless it's an emergency. After the three months are gone, Paul and the centurion and Luke and Aristarchus and 
probably some more, go around to the proper harbor of Malta, where the ships really did harbor that weren't driven up on the reefs and shipwrecked. And they find there another grain ship headed to Italy, another ship of Alexandria. This is one of those that, as we talked last week, would have been about half a football field long, 40 feet deep. It had wintered over in the harbor there in Malta. They get on this ship and they depart from Malta, which is our circled island. They go up to Syracuse on Sicily. Syracuse, they go in. That's a good day's journey. And then they go from there to Regium. And Regium is actually on the very tip of the boot of Italy. They sail through the little strait there and they go up to the port at Puteoli. Puteoli is still there, though it's really now just a suburb of Naples. This is the, um, the Bay of Naples, is the same bay. And we can go see it. They would have sailed, by the way, past the Isle of Capri. Really pretty island. They go into the Bay of Naples, which you can see from this picture gives you an incredible view of Mount Vesuvius. That's that mountain that's going to go kaboom in about 17 years. In fact, one of the children of the folks back in Caesarea that had sat and judged Paul uh, gets killed in Vesuvius. Um, The explosion, uh, Pompeii and all of that gets wiped out, remember? Okay, Bay of Naples. They go into the Bay of Naples, and when they arrive there, there's a church present in uh, the town. The church at Puteoli, it's called Puzzoli now, okay? But the church at Puteoli welcomes Paul, welcomes Luke, welcomes Aristarchus, brings them in, takes care of them, feeds them, clothes them, gives them everything they need. And, uh, um, you know, Paul's under guard. And I want to pause for a second. It's got to make a difference to that guard. It's got to. That centurion, that big, tough Roman, the Romans uh, aren't, soldiers aren't used to being treated real well by the locals because one of the things the Romans are able to do, as we know from our gospel studies, instead of carrying their gear, they could compel you to carry it for one mile. Doesn't matter what you're doing. Doesn't matter where you are in your day. You might say, "Uh, I don't really have time. I need to get the harvest in. Soldier can compel you. You have no choice. That's why Jesus said, if someone asks you to go a mile, go with them too. Go overboard, showing your hospitality and your caring. It's a Christian mark. So the the, the church receives Paul. It's got to make an impression on the centurion. He's not used to being received. And you got to know that the church doesn't say, Paul, here, let us treat you well. As for that fellow who has control of you, eh, leave him alone. No, they, they don't. They, they're going to show that hospitality all the way around. And so the, the centurion would have already seen it. He would have seen it when they stopped in Sidon and the church takes care of Paul. He would have seen it each step along the way. The centurion's already been moved enough by Paul that he, the centurion saves Paul's life at the time of the shipwreck. So the church comes in. The church hosts them. Meanwhile, someone must have dispatched someone to Rome because the church at Rome finds out Paul's coming and Paul's down the road. Paul's 60 some odd miles away. 
the church in Rome has gotten a letter from Paul three years or so ago. And in the letter, Paul says, I hope to come see you. The church at Rome's never met Paul by and large. There are some who had. We know Priscilla and Aquila are there, likely, at this point. And so Priscilla and Aquila probably led the brigade that came down and actually met Paul on the road to Rome, about 35 miles outside of Rome. They walked half the way there and met Paul and his crew. And the word that Luke uses for welcome, the church welcomed Paul on the road, is, is basically it's, 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 it's the way you would welcome a dignitary. It's, it's like they rolled out the red carpet for us. They came, and, it, and it, don't you know, the centurions just register. Who is this fellow who all over the world is loved by all these different people who are so excited they walk 35 miles. They walk 35 miles so they can walk back with him and he feels the love. What kind of a man is this who heals? What kind of a man is this who gets divine words from God that that come true? What kind of a man is this that a poisonous snake can't hurt? I think it makes a difference. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. But some of these guards become Christians. Now, once Paul gets to Rome, Paul is put under the care and custody of a a specific soldier who, who... uh, the odds are they would have worked in four-hour shifts, but Paul, he's got a measure of freedom, but he's still guarded by a soldier. He probably had to wear a light chain, a light uh, uh, manacle with a chain um, uh, to make sure he didn't go too far. But Paul had a great deal of freedom. Paul was able to stay in a house that was rented. Um, Paul didn't have to stay in the Roman prison at this point. Uh, Paul gets there and, and, and the church welcomes him and helps him with a house and takes good care of him, brings him food. The connection groups were working. The ministry of, of caring was working. And so Paul uh, uh, is, is free to preach. And first thing Paul does is he calls in all the Jews from Rome. Now we know that there were more than a handful of synagogues in Rome at the time. And Paul calls in the leaders of the Jews and he says, "Uh, do you all know about me and what's going on? And the leaders say, no, nobody's told us anything. We know about Christians. We're not too hip on that sect, by the way. But about you, Paul, we know nothing. Why? Paul says, well, let me tell you what happened. I was in Jerusalem and I wasn't transgressing the laws of our fathers or the traditions of our fathers. I wasn't I wasn't doing anything wrong. But some folks, some local power boys got upset with me and had me arrested. And even though I didn't do anything wrong, I got tried. They got to put their case on against me, but their case fell apart. 
And they tried it against me twice. And both times the, the, the judge said I should be released. But the second time I did not get released because the Jews really, those, those local power guys really wanted me. I'd gotten under their skin. And so what happened is instead of uh, uh, having to keep going through all of that, I said, well, I'm appealing to Caesar. And so here I am. And they said, well, you know, you hadn't offended us. We didn't see any of that, so we're okay with it. But we are real curious about how a fellow like you would be one of them Christians. You know, Paul is rabbinically trained by Gamaliel, top rabbi of his day, top university, top of his class. Speaks Hebrew, reads Torah. Paul has, has scripture memorized out the wazoo. How is it that someone like you becomes one of them, one of those Christians? Paul says, oh, I'd love to tell you. Let's set a day and bring all of your family and all of your Jewish friends. And we're just going to have Jewish come to the Lord Jesus day. Oh, by the way, did I tell you Jesus was Jewish? So the Jews say, okay. So a bunch of people. I mean, they get a huge crowd. They all come. And Paul starts talking to them and reasoning with them. Luke tells us Paul reasoned with them. I love this. From the law and from the prophets. Now, how would he do something like that? Well, if we had... A, a Jewish person, and, and actually we do have some Jews who are in this class. Um, uh, 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 we we uh, uh, have, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I met a Jewish rabbi who is a Messianic Jew, who has a Messianic synagogue, who comes uh, to this class, or did uh, at, at least that time. And and what what do you do? How from, for example, the prophets would Paul explain who Jesus is? Well, that's not hard. From the prophets, he, he's got a myriad of verses. He could go to Isaiah and talk about the suffering servant who was wounded for our transgressions, by whose stripes we are healed. He could go to Micah and quote, but from you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, from you will come forth one. You know, he's got uh, he's got a ton of scriptures he can go to. He can go to to uh, uh, the Psalms. And he can quote the Psalms where Jesus is is prophesied about the Psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But ends with the victory in of resurrection. There are lots of places that that Paul could go. But from the law, from the Torah, from the Old Testament, where does Paul go to reason with them about Jesus out of the law? Oh, that's not hard either, is it? Think about it. Jesus comes to release us from the chains of sin, right? We're enslaved to sin. And sin leads to death. So here we are, we're enslaved to sin, which leads to death. Can we go to the first five books of the Old Testament? That's the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 
Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're called the law. In Hebrew, the Torah. Can we go to the first five books of the Old Testament and find the Jews in slavery? Sure. Where? In Egypt. The Jews are enslaved in Egypt. Just like we are enslaved to sin. How do the Jews get released from their slavery? Do you remember? Of course. We've seen the movie. Charlton Heston. He comes out. Let my people go. Pharaoh says, yeah, right. He says, no, no, no. From God. Let my people go. Yeah, right. Okay, you're not letting them go. We're bringing plagues. Big deal. All right, plague number one. Oh, that's bad. Okay, I'll let them go. As plagues come and plagues go. Pharaoh always backs away until the final plague. What's the final plague? Death of the firstborn. Death of the firstborn is what's going to bring freedom from slavery for the Jews, for God's chosen people. Now, when death of the firstborn is going to happen, what do the Jews do to secure their freedom? They take a lamb that's pure and unblemished, and they sacrifice that lamb. And they take the blood and they put it over their door. So the angel of death passes by those who have the blood of the lamb over them. And those who are saved by the blood of the lamb are delivered from bondage and slavery. And their deliverance goes through the baptism of the Red Sea, the waters that are separated for them. And they're fed by God. And they're nourished by God. And they're brought into the promised land. That's Jesus. And that's the story of our redemption. We are slaves to sin. And nothing. You try every plague in the world. Nothing seems to work. To secure our freedom. To get us into the promised land. The only thing that works is death of the firstborn. God's only begotten son. And we are protected. We do not die. Because the sacrifice lamb has been slain and his blood has secured our freedom. And the angel of death passes us over. And we are redeemed. And we are set free. And we are delivered. So Paul has these discussions. Whoo! And the Jews... A number of them come to faith. Some don't. And when some don't, Paul's reaction is to say what he always says. It's okay. 
This is also written about. Scripture says you're going to have ears, but you're not going to hear. Scripture says you're going to have eyes, but you're not going to see. And Scripture says because of that, the word's going out to the Gentiles. So, I'm preaching to the Gentiles. And Paul does, for the next two years, Luke tells us, Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And this is where Luke draws his history to a close. It's where Luke draws his history to a close. From here, we conjecture based upon other scriptures about what happened to Paul. We've got some good ideas, and we're going to cover those in this class because there are some pretty clear indications in scripture what happened from here. And there's also some good historical data that the church has safely guarded through the ages that we'll look at as well. But suffice it to say, it's from his Roman imprisonment where Paul preaches that Paul also, most likely, writes his four prison letters. Those four prison letters, they're called the prison epistles, we're going to study next. It's next. It's the letter to the church at Philippi. The letter to the churches in the Colossae region, the letter to the church at Ephesus, and a letter to this fellow named Philemon. My favorite thing we're going to cover is the class on Philemon. That's the one you're going to get the letter from me about. You want to be here for that one. There are some things in Philemon that are really exciting to study about that you don't get very often. Okay, so that's it. And Luke brings to a close his covering of Paul. Now, we're able to determine some of the things that happened to Paul by reading through his prison letters. For example, in Philemon, Paul says, I want you to know that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. <laughs> this is what happens. Well, we've read the story. We're not surprised that all of the imperial guard have come to know it. They've never seen anything like it. We'll find out later that even some of them have become Christians because how we live makes a difference and how others perceive the gospel. So with that, points for home. Changed up a little bit from your handout, not too much. No doubt this guy's a murderer. Okay, well, wait, I changed my mind. <laughs> I wonder if Luke had humor knowing that they changed their mind from he's a murderer to he's a god. Don't you know he had fun writing, no doubt, this guy's a murderer. I am absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt. There's no way you'll ever persuade me otherwise. It's very clear. There is no disputing this guy's a murderer. Okay, well, maybe he's not. My point is this. Let's carefully 
and with reverence consider what we know is of God. Now, don't get me wrong. All good things come from God. We know that. We read it in James. We know God works all things together for good. Paul wrote that in Romans 8, for those who love the Lord. But it's real. Sometimes it's perceived very spiritual to talk about what is a God thing versus what's not. And I'm all for giving the Lord credit. And I'm all for giving the Lord glory. And I don't want this to ever come out that I'm against that. But I think we need to deal with God with some reverence here. And recognize that he, he and his vision and his ways are far beyond ours. And it may be a God thing when circumstances work out to something that looks obviously wonderful. But it may be a God thing when circumstances work out into something that doesn't seem so great to us. We need to be careful. Remember, it's Matthew 16, where in in one chapter in Matthew, and I'm sure Matthew put it in here on purpose, and, and with the Holy Spirit, it's in here on purpose anyway. In one chapter in Matthew, Jesus says, Kesari Philippi, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter answer? You're the Christ, son of the living God, right? And the response from, the response from Jesus is, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Heaven and earth, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. That was a God thing, is what he's saying. That's not from you. You didn't figure that out. That's from God. It's just a few verses later, Jesus says, Hey, son of man's going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get handed over to the chief priests. I'm going to get persecuted, and I'm going to get killed. Peter says, Heaven forbid. No, we're not going to let that happen. And Peter, who's mouthing the God thing, just a few verses earlier, at this point, Jesus says, "Uh -uh, Get behind me, Satan. It's not a God thing. The God thing is for me to go and be killed. God's giving his only begotten son. We just need to be careful. And we, we, we need to be thoughtful about it is all I'm encouraging. Second, Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks. I love that. I love that. Paul. Paul. Listen, Saint Paul. The intimate who saw Jesus Christ resurrected in body on the road to Damascus and heard his voice. Paul, who had been caught up to the third heaven with the mystic experience that words can't describe. Paul, who penned 13 letters that were so significant and inspired by the Holy Spirit that the church has seen fit by the guidance of the Holy Spirit to include them in our canon of Scripture. Paul, who preached and opened the doors in Europe and Asia to the Gentiles. Paul, who could lay hands on Tychicus when he falls out of a two-story window and bring the dead to life. Paul, who could heal all the sick of the island of Malta. Paul, who knows Hebrew, who knows Greek, 
who knows Latin, who can quote the Old Testament, who can quote Greek poets. Paul, who has testified before kings and is going to speak before Caesar. Gathers some sticks to help the fire. There is no task too small. There is no service too small. I feel guilty doing this point for home to a degree because I stand up here and teach. And y'all are all so nice because you clap because I, I prepare these lessons. Well, I do this out of love for you, but I do this out of love for God. I mean, he puts this burden and this burning in me to do this. I'll tell you who I want to clap for. I want to clap for all of you. Because you come. You listen. You learn. You encourage other people simply by being here. And some of you have seen fit quietly. Or, or, or just in, in open, it's clear. But never puffing out their chest and bragging about it. You have seen fit to do so many acts of service in this class. From the folks who, you know, I email out my lesson to Linda Hudgens every Saturday afternoon. And it's not just her getting it and passing it on to other people who are going to make sure it's copied and make sure it's here. But she does so much more than that. She has to email me back and tell me she got it because otherwise I break out in hives. <laughs> she emailed me one time and said, now, why am I emailing you back? I said, because otherwise I break out in hives. She said, okay. She emails me back every week. You know, Mike sits back there. Ward sits back there. They work through all this equipment. It gets set up by Richard. I'm in so much trouble now for even starting to mention these names because I'm going to leave out so, so many. But I'm here to tell you, all of you who are working for the body of Christ in this class, picking up sticks, are doing something of value to the Lord and his kingdom and each other. And so from me to you, thank you very much. I clap for you. I appreciate you. Next point. When the brothers heard, they came. I love the fellowship point. That's why the connection groups are important. The drawback to a class this large is it's hard. No, you have to work to get connected. And some of you are at a place right now where you don't want to be connected. You just want to be here. And that's okay. That's absolutely fine. But one of my goals is to get you past that point in your life to where you want to be connected. So I'll keep pushing you. And when the time is right, you'll say, okay, now the time is right. But I'm telling you, there is, there's not just importance to each other. There's importance to the community at large when they see us connected. Last point. Do you know what August 8th is? August 8th, this week coming up, is International Pray for Malta Day. It really is. Malta is an incredible place. It is, uh, I got these notes, August 8th, Friday, Pray for Malta Day. Malta is one of, of five places that's been designated as key uh, uh, nexus points because so many people have vacation homes there from Africa and other places. 
We've got missionaries there. We've got a slide here of Robin, Nathan, Catherine, Earl, and Thomas Pinkston who serve as missionaries there because it's the kind of place that's like the hub of a wheel. You reach the folks who are in Malta and you reach the folks that are going out all over. And it's an area that needs the message of Jesus Christ. So as we close, let's pray for Malta. Lord, we lift up to you your work. We lift it up on a personal basis. I pray for your work in my life in the works of, of this class, in the lives of everybody in here. I pray uh, for those who don't know you that you will, through your son, uh, reach into their heart and set them free from the law of sin and death as they find their, their righteousness through faith in Jesus. And for those who know you, Father, I pray that you'll continue to work to pull them into connection with you and with each other. I pray that this class will edify them. But I pray your work will go beyond the confines of this class, that your will might be done throughout this earth. Specifically, we lift up to you the work and ministry in Malta and ask that you bless it, that there be people there who come to know you in ways that, that profoundly take your message, your mercy, your grace to the ends of, of, of the earth. We pray for the missionaries that they will find your spirit, that your words will work within them. That you will give them safety and security in you so that whatever may come, they know that they are your tools for your purposes. Thank you again for this class. Bless my brothers and sisters as they leave through Jesus Christ. Amen.